Okay, let's open up in our Bibles now to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, continuing in our study of the book. We're looking carefully at this little section, verses 15 through 23, Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus. Last week we covered just a little bit of verse 18. This week we'll cover verse 18. We'll read verses 15 through 18 right now. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, which was a city very much like Santa Barbara, and says, Ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I've not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly. Asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called, his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that that prayer would be answered for us today, that you'd flood our hearts with light. You would enlighten us. You'd give us understanding, give us spiritual insight and wisdom to know the hope of the calling that we have in Christ. God, you've been so good to us. You're so kind to us. The fact that we've been born in this area at this moment in history, we're, we're blessed beyond multitudes of generations and millions of people in the world. I just want to say thank you for that, God. Even the fact that we can just openly worship you today at the top of our lungs at a, in this public place, and teach and preach and proclaim your word without fear of any sort of real backlash. Thank you, Lord. We are exceedingly blessed. And yet I'm mindful that there's tons of heartache and heartbreak in this room. And even though it may pale in comparison to the plight of some of the nations, our pain is real. Our burden's heavy nonetheless. But you are the God who has entered into our pain. You are the God who daily bears our burdens. You are good and you are kind. And even before you made the world, you chose us because you loved us in Christ to be your very own. Thank you, Lord. Don't let these truths be lost on us. Save us from just being a normal church, Lord. Save us from churchianity. Save us from Sunday stuff and just going through the motions. Make us vibrant lovers of Christ. Holy Spirit, set our hearts aflame with your truth. Thank you for your word, which is inerrant and living and active. Thank you that it's like a fire and a hammer, that it burns and it pounds in our hearts and minds. Pray that the glory of God and the finished work of Christ would be profound and radical and transformative to us today. And Lord, please now author my thoughts and my feelings. Cause me to communicate in a way that is faithful to you and your word and brings much glory to your name and give us ears to hear what the Spirit has to say to the church. Pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, as I said before, last week we just dipped a little bit into verse 18 and we studied that little phrase, that part of the sentence where Paul's praying that their hearts and our hearts would be flooded with light. We talked about that concept of light, light and darkness, and enlightenment. What is it? Why do we need enlightenment? Why is he praying that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened? And we learned last week that enlightenment is a matter of both divine intervention and continuance. 
that we need God to enlighten us and we need him to do so on a continual basis. The reason is because we dabble in darkness, don't we? And, and so our spiritual perception, our right understanding, our clarity of the truth of God and the work of Christ becomes obscured from time to time as we dabble in darkness. Our hearts become dimmed and calloused. Our conscience is seared. And so we need divine intervention, God to enlighten us on a continual basis. And so Paul's praying that for the church in Ephesus and, and us as well. And the concept of enlightenment and dabbling darkness, one of the worst unintended consequences of the dimming of our hearts due to our dabbling in darkness is that we begin to lose proper Christian hope. One of the unintended and most tragic consequences of our dabbling in darkness is that we begin to lose proper Christian hope. That's why Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. His intended consequence is that they would understand the confident hope they have in Christ. The hope of his calling, as it says in the New American Standard. The intended consequence of his prayer for them, and, and, and so what has to happen in our life, is that there would be this understanding of the hope that we have. I want to be lost on us. So, so what is this hope, this Christian hope, the hope of his calling, the confident hope that our text is urging us to understand? Well, Paul was writing to predominantly a Greek culture, Greco-minded sort of culture, Hellenistic is another way of saying that. And in a lot of ways, that culture and the way they thought was very similar to ours. And it was very similar to ours in the way that they thought about and perceived hope. In that culture, hope was this, as one commentator says, a consoling dream of the imagination designed to forget the present troubles but yet leaving one with many uncertainties. A consoling dream, it comforts us. It's not necessarily very real or substantive. Designed to forget the present troubles. It has to do with escapism, escapism excuse me, and, and cocooning away, get, getting away from those things that burden us. And yet it leaves us with uncertainties. It really didn't solve anything. It doesn't provide anything of any real worth for the future. This is reflected in our lives and in our culture all the time. We say things like, gosh, I, I hope so, but I just don't know. Right? I really hope, I, I want to comfort myself with the thought that maybe, but, but I don't know the way that things are going to come out. So I'm, I'm left with uncertainty. I want thus and so to happen, but I don't know what's going to happen with this and that. And so what we have then with our perspective of hope and the original audience is sort of this limp, mushy optimism. It's hopeful, but it's just limp, mushy optimism. There's not a lot of a substance or truth or grounding to it. It's just really optimism. And even though it's pretty weak in our cultural understanding, what we do know about every human who has ever existed is that humans survive on hope. Humanity gets by on hope. No matter how weak or unfounded, there's something in the human heart that has to hope. There's something in the soul of men and women that needs to have this thing to look forward to. 
evidenced by the fact that what do we do in times of trouble? We hope, right? In times of trouble, we look for reasons to hope. We look for reasons to think that stuff might get better. When we can't find a reason to hope, what we do is despair. And that's the worst plight of humanity, is the absence of hope, which is despair. And so we, we have that phrase that nobody ever wants to hear in the difficult times of life, all hope is gone. That's the catch-all phrase for it's over. The, the, the ship sank, the, the Titanic is going down, all hope is gone. Right? And then sets in despair. And then humanity feels lost immediately and ultimately. We need to have hope. And God has made it so. This common human thing of, of wanting to hope is something that God has put in every person. He has made us to want to hope. And he has made us to hope in him, what humanity has generally is misplaced hope, misappropriated hope, unfounded hope, untrue hope, lesser hope. But God has made us to hope in him. Just like he has made us to know him and our hearts are restless until they find rest in him, our hearts are truly hopeless until we find hope in him. The challenge for humanity, both pre and post salvifically, before we get saved and even after we get saved, is we have this proclivity to hope in lesser things. It's so strong in us, this desire to hope, that we have this proclivity to hope in lesser things. And so the Bible speaks about humanity before coming to faith in Jesus Christ as being without hope. Unwittingly, they, they might not say that, but the biblical description of the person without Jesus is they are without hope. Ephesians 2.12 says they're alienated from God and without hope in this world. Now they may have all sorts of pseudo hope, but again, it's mushy, groundless, limp optimism that we spoke of. Not real, solid, true, historical, lasting, strong, and sure hope. Where do we find that? We find that in someone who rose from the dead. His name is Jesus. We find that in the historical fact of Christ being nailed to the cross on public display and then having predicted his own resurrection from the dead, pulling it off. There's something substantive there. There's something historic there. There's something prophetic there. There's something unique there that's never happened before. Someone offering to be the only unique son of God who can pay the price for your sins, predicting his own death and resurrection, and then pulling it off. That's not mush. That's not limp. That's not weak. That's not unfounded. That is certain, certain and sure, strong, true, better hope. This is what God offers to the world in Christ. Every heart is longing to hope. Now he's writing to this predominantly Hellenistic culture, Greek culture again. We have this weak definition of hope that was full of all this uncertainty. Compare that to the, the biblical concept of hope that comes primarily from the Hebraic culture, right? The Jewish culture over time. As God developed his people throughout the Old Testament, the idea of hope as we see it in the Old Testament is this. The confidence of the righteous, God's people, 
directed toward the eternal God who will protect and ultimately deliver, if not now, certainly in the future. The confidence, notice that word, of the righteous directed toward the eternal God, not anything less, not anything other, who will protect and ultimately deliver, if not now, certainly in the future. It not only has temporal consequences, it's not only meaningful for Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday of this week, but it has to do with all eternity. The New Testament understanding then of hope is built on that Old Testament understanding. And here's a good definition of it. Hope in the New Testament is a confident, joyful, trusting in and waiting for God to work out his plan for our good and his glory. There's a good definition of what Christian hope is meant to be. This thing which is often obscured by our dabbling in darkness, dimmed by the callousing of our heart. A confident, joyful. Joyful is a key word there. It's hard to say we're really hoping in God. We're always moping and mourning and complaining. I'm preaching to myself right now, okay? Preaching to myself. You guys don't even need it. It's a confident, just kidding, joyful, (laughs) trusting and waiting for God to work out his plan for our good and for his glory. The word, the Greek word hope is elpis. Um, One of our media guys has it tattooed on his body in Greek. It's a great, great word to get a tattoo. Elpis, hope. Expectation with a sense of confidence. Not mushy uncertainty. Not mere optimism. Not escapism. Expectation with confidence. It is confidence in the face of adversity and ambiguity. Because it is based on a Savior who is strong and true. And so what we say as Christians is that all of our hope is in Christ. Not some of it. It's not that we hope in riches and Christ. It's not that we hope in careers and Christ. It's not that we hope in relationships and Christ. It's not that we hope in our mamas and Christ. Christianity is putting all of our hope in Christ. The fact that in and through Christ, we are saved then from hopelessness, the ultimate horrible plight of humanity, hopelessness, despair. We're saved from that. The despair of the burden of our sins, the shame of our sins, the penalty of our sins. That life may never get better. We're saved in and through Christ from that hopelessness and from lesser hopes that always disappoint. Haven't you ever been disappointed when you put your hope in someone? I don't don't care if if it's your spouse or, or your parents or your boss, or the security of your job, if you hope in those things for your joy, for your sense of well-being, and certainly for eternity, then you can only and ever be disappointed. That's why the goal of the Christian is to put all of his or her hope in Jesus. Not some of it, but all of it. All of our hope in him. For our wholeness and well-being, both presently and forever. And, because Christianity is not just about us, for the wholeness and the well-being of the whole world. Remember what I said earlier, we got to keep the nations before us. God is the God of the nations. There's a whole plight confronting humanity and multitudinous plights, which are heartbreaking. 
Jesus is the hope of the whole world for our own wholeness and wellness presently and in the future and for that of the entire world. This hope that we're speaking of is confident, according to the definition, because it's based on God's eternal plan and Christ's finished work. We hear reverberations from way back in verse 4 when we were studying earlier. Way back in verse 4 of Ephesians 1, it says this, Even before God made the world, he loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. You see, our hope is confident because there's nothing temporal about it. It's grounded in eternity past, in the decree and the will and the inner workings of God. That before he ever even made the world, he loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. It's grounded in eternity in the person of God. And when we think about these things, when we think about, well, I hear that promise and I, I, I hear that ancient hope, but I'm uncertain about the future still yet. What the Christian must remember is that God's past record is our future assurance. God's past record is our future assurance. So we go to the word, we look at the promises that God has made, and we see the ways in which they've been fulfilled throughout history and in the word, and we begin to say, we have a God that we can trust. We begin to say that this is not mere optimism. This is not mushy. This is not unfounded. God's past record is our future assurance. Hope for the believer is not wishful thinking, but the absolute confidence that God will make true what he has spoken, what he has promised concerning us, concerning the wicked, and concerning the world. And I didn't point to anyone in particular when I said wicked. <laughs> the wicked, now I'm pointing towards someone. Just kidding. Also, unlike the Greek concept of hope, Christian hope is not designed, get this, this is important. Christian hope is not designed to cause us or enable us to just forget our present troubles. Christian hope is designed to help us and enable us to confront our present troubles. It's not escapism. It's that we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. It's not that we hide away from. It's not that we medicate. It's not that we are ostriches who put our, our heads in the sand. It's that we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus who rose from the dead and who himself is our hope. You see, you understand? This is a different kind of hope that we're talking about. It's not what the world talks about. So, so we face our present troubles with confidence, not in ourselves or our resources, but Christ, his goodness, his presence, and his promises. Now, let, let's connect this to last week a little bit and the need for enlightenment that we spoke of. When our hearts are darkened through this dabbling in darkness, our sinful proclivities, doing the things that we shouldn't do, we lose perspective on these truths and we begin to once again hope like the world hopes. When we consume like the world, pursuing stuff over God, power more than God, position more than God, money more than God, recognition more than God. When we consume like the world, 
And when we act like the world, pursuing sin over righteousness, then our hearts are dimmed and we begin to hope like the world. And hope diminuates, falls into mere optimism. And once again, we find ourselves under the weight of the burden of the question, can I ever be delivered? Can I ever be forgiven? And the text is urging us to understand this hope that we have. In the face of adversity, in the face of difficulty. Let me just read to you real quick Romans chapter 8. Familiar ground right here. Romans chapter 8 verse 28. It says, we know that God causes everything to work together for good. For those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Anybody know that one? That's everybody's favorite verse, huh? That in Jeremiah 29, 11. Let me just read it again. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance, predestination. And he chose them, election, to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Verse 30. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself, justification. And having given them right standing with himself, he gave them his glory, glorification. Because God has predestined us, chose us, justified us, and we are in glory seated with him in the heavenlies, as Ephesians will go on to say. Our life is secure no matter what comes our way because our well-being and our ultimate standing is not dependent upon us, but Christ. See, we get that? That's the hope of our calling. For the foundation of the world, he called us to himself, justified us through his cross, glorified us, and will do so positionally with him. So what we have then are, are, are these different forms of hope. And one is that we have a confident hope in the work of the cross and the pardon from our sin. Look at Jude 24. Now all glory to God, we have it on the screen who is able to keep you from falling away and will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. Listen to that. that that's a hope that we have. That when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, the pardon from our sins is real. And it's not that the Father's just going to let us into heaven by the hair of our chinny chin chin, by the skin of our teeth, just barely sliding in begrudgingly. It's that because we put our faith in Christ and we've been cleansed by his finished work on the cross, we will stand before God in his holiness in the fire of who he is, blameless with great joy. And it says, we all glory to God, who is able to do this. He's able to keep us from falling away and he's able to bring us. You ever feel like, God, I, I don't think I can stick with you. The temptation is too great. My proclivity towards sin are too great. Life seems too long. My heart's too broken. I don't think I could stick with you. The good news of Christian hope is that Jesus is the one sticking with you. That's the good news of hope. Jesus is the one sticking with you. He's able to keep you from falling away. And he's able to bring you into God's presence 
blameless, with great joy. We have a confident hope that Christ will stick with us. As I just said, Philippians 1 says it a different way. Verse 6, And I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. He's not giving up on you. He's not going to let you go. He's not done with you. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 28, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Next, we have a confident hope that our end will be with Christ. This is perhaps the most theologically proper, succinct definition of Christian hope. Christian hope is that we will ultimately be with him. Look at 1 Thessalonians. It says, And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know, I put 1 Thessalonians 1, but it's 4. Typo. Verse 13. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. Right? You ever had someone in your family die? We grieve, but we don't grieve like those who have no hope, who are alienated from God, separate from God without hope in the world. The Christian perspective is different. We have Christian hope. Verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. That's interesting, huh? Verse 15. We tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died, but the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. First, the Christians who have died will rise from their graves. Trip out. (laughs) Trip out. Okay, this is not mushy optimism. This is holy scripture. When Christ returns, Christians who have died will rise from their graves. You say, what about, we we cremated my grandma. God will handle it. God will handle it. Christians who have died will rise from their graves. Verse 17, then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. That is Christian hope. That, that, there's, no, there's no religion in the world that thinks that. That's crazy. Está muy loco. Como se dice, no way, Holmes. That's, that's crazy. But God's past record is our future assurance. The Bible told us that Jesus would come the first time to die on the cross in our place for our sins. Scripture told us that he would rise from the dead and ascend to the right hand of the Father in glory ruling over the nations. And Scripture tells us that he will come again for his own and we will always be with the Lord. That is Christian hope. Grounded in something. Firm, secure, and true. What do you have that's more reliable than Scripture? Everybody's talking about, I don't think you can trust the Bible. Really? 
What do you have? Show me. This is a holy word of God, man. Christ is coming again. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up in the sky to meet him in the sky. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Encourage one another with these words, it says. Man, this is good. And also at that time, we will realize the confident hope that we have that Christ is going to right every wrong. Jesus himself said in Matthew 16, For the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father and will judge all people according to their deeds. Revelation 21, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. That's Christian hope. That even though we see what's happening in Sudan, even though we see human trafficking, slavery, all sorts of forms of wickedness and brokenness. There's coming a day when God himself will right every single wrong. This hope keeps us from endless despair. So we can't only clap and celebrate and rejoice. We have to live differently. Yes. Christian doctrine is not merely an issue of celebration, though it is. We must always celebrate true Christian teaching. But it's not only a matter of celebration. It is a matter of transformation. We must not only sing differently because Christ is coming back. We must live differently because Christ is coming back. So how do we do that? Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 12, New American Standard. Tells us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking for the blessed hope. Referring to the rapture of the church that we read about in 1 Thessalonians 4. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession zealous for good deeds. See, Jesus is coming back. He's coming for his own. The dead in Christ shall rise and we who are alive in man shall be caught up and be with the Lord forever. And then he's gonna judge the nations and he's gonna right every wrong. And he's gonna expose all darkness with his righteous light. And we say yes and amen, but then how do we live? Deny ungodliness and worldly desires and live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Because again, verse 14, he gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed to purify for himself. You do not live for yourself. He saved you for himself. A people for his own possession. Zealous for good deeds. Not zealous for money. Not zealous for position. Not zealous for acquisition. Zealous for good deeds. Life on mission with God for the glory of God. And this is exactly how Paul connects it in our text of Ephesians 1.18. The great Christian hope is that Christ is coming again for us to gather us to himself because we are his special possession, his own people. When Christ comes again, it won't be to die for sinners, 
It will be to judge sinners. In Scripture, the judgment of God is represented as fire. In all the New Testament, it's represented as fire. Consuming fire. I had a friend visiting my house recently, and um, I have a guitar collection. I've been collecting guitars for years, love guitars. I have a guitar collection, and you know, I, I did what people with guitar collections do. I, I hung them on the wall, you know, in one of the rooms in my house, and I just sit there and stare at them and <laughs> try not to make them little idols in my life. And my friend was there, and he's looking at my guitar, and he's into them too. He's into guitars, so we're like, yeah, that's a 72 Les Paul, and that's this and that. Yeah, I have a 72 Les Paul. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> all this different stuff. And so we're, we're, we're looking at the guitars, and he goes, okay, dude. Dude, in a fire, which one do you grab? <laughs> and my honest response was, that's like asking me which one of my kids I grab. Like, <laughs> you don't even ask that question. But that's a common question, isn't it? When the fire comes, what are you going to grab? Whatever you go for is the most precious thing to you. When the fire of God's judgment comes, Jesus will snatch you from it. He will save you from the fire of God's judgment if your hope and your trust and your faith is in Him because you are His special possession, chosen. Sorry, I don't know why I'm so excited. And what that evidence is, is that we're incredibly special to God, Christian, those who have put their faith in Christ. Before he made the world, he loved you and chose you in Christ. You might be holy and without blame in his eyes. So how do we live? Holy. We endeavor to live blamelessly. Because we belong to God, and God is right. And the fact that there is a coming judgment proves that sin is wrong. Man, if you're all caught up in this relativism junk, and you're thinking, you know, what's right for you, wrong for me, all, all this stuff, who's, who's to really say what's sin? When the judgment comes, every mouth will be closed, every knee will bow, every tongue will have to confess. God was right, and you were wrong. The fact that there's a judgment coming proves that God is righteous and he hates sin. And if we who have put our faith in Jesus Christ and repented of our sins and are called by him to be his own and call ourselves after his name as Christians, then how can we merely dabble in the darkness that he hates and came to vanquish and will one day judge? How do we live in light of the coming of Christ? Righteously. Because we are his own special possession. Our text says we are his great and glorious rich inheritance. We belong to him. Isaiah 26, 7 and 8 says, but for those who are righteous, the way is not steep and rough. You are a God who does what is right and you smooth out the path ahead of them. Lord, we show our trust in you by obeying your laws. Our heart's desire is to glorify your name. 
So the Christian says, the Christian hears the sermon and the Christian says, yes, I have, I have hope in God. But the psalmist says, we show our trust in him through our obedience. Jesus would say it differently. Say, if you love me, you obey my commandments. I would say it differently yet again and say, what you do is what you believe. Our, our text says that we are his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. If we believe that, we do life differently. If we believe that we are my beloved, and my, my beloved is mine, that, that we belong to him and we're precious to him and he redeemed us from sin and he's purified us for himself, a people zealous for good works, then, then we live differently. And how we live exposes, betrays what we believe. And whether or not we're truly hoping in Christ, proper Christian hope, in his coming for his people. What we do is what we believe. This truth that we have hope in Christ isn't just a head thing. It changes us. This is why Paul's praying for the church in Ephesus, because if they really got this, if we really get this, then it changes us. This fact that we are, as our text says, his rich and glorious inheritance. That knowledge truly laid hold of through the eyes of faith and a heart after Christ will change us with joy and love. You see, the goal of the life of the Christian is to enjoy Jesus. To know God and enjoy him forever. That's why we exist. Our goal is to enjoy Jesus. That requires hope. And hope is the evidence that God actually enjoys us. Wait a minute, listen now. You see, we don't feel this way. We feel like God tolerates us. Or God is mad at us. Or that he's always disappointed in us. Or he's just letting us get by. But when we repent of our sins and put our faith and our hope in Jesus Christ, then it's not that God tolerates us. It's that God enjoys us who are in Christ. God in Christ enjoys you. Why else would the text say you are his rich and glorious inheritance? Who has a rich and glorious inheritance and doesn't enjoy it? Who has something wonderful and says, hate that thing? Who inherits a billion dollars and says, eh? Nobody. God calls us his inheritance. It hardly makes sense in our minds that God delights in calling us his own, but it's because we are identified through faith in Christ, his beloved son. And so he, he actually enjoys us. He says, you're my rich and glorious inheritance. How else could he say he enjoys you? God, what do you think about me? You're my rich and glorious inheritance. You're my 1972 Les Paul. <laughs> Ephesians 1.5. Actually, Zephaniah 3.17 first. One of our favorite verses. For the Lord your God is living among you. He's a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. In Christ, God enjoys you. What's the purpose of life? The Westminster Shorter Catechism would say, 
to know God and enjoy him forever. Part of enjoying him is knowing that he enjoys you. Ephesians 1.5 God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. Saving you gave God great pleasure. That's why Jesus is coming back for you. That's why the text says that we are his rich and glorious inheritance. He's not a begrudging savior. He's a mighty savior who delights in you. And saving you gave him great pleasure. This truth, which is why Paul's praying, if we will lay hold of it, changes us. If we really get this, and we don't always get this because, because that, that hope becomes obscured by dabbling in darkness. I'll just say from my own life, the more I sin and continue to give my sin, myself to sin, the less this hope seems real to me. Because our perception, the eyes of our hearts, our spiritual understanding, our view of the cross of Christ is finished work. And the goal of God to bring you to himself is his rich and glorious inheritance is obscured by our obsession with sin. That's why Peter said to the nation of Israel, repent therefore that times of refreshing may come from being in the presence of God. And so we need help in this understanding. So it's a matter of prayer. Paul's praying. But it's also a matter of reading your Bible. Lots of Christian speakers these days are disparaging the basic Sunday school answer when the questions of life come up and the question of Christian living come up. That basic Sunday school answer of pray and read your Bible. And they say, well, that's not enough. You, you, you got to give them more. You know what? Try doing anything without praying and reading your Bible. Try the Christian experience without praying and read your Bible. Stop praying. Don't read the Bible. Tell me about your Christian experience. Cultivate a fruitful, faithful prayer life. Give yourself to the reading and the studying of Scripture and then tell me about your Christian experience and the hope that you have. You want this hope to be obscured? You want to sink into despair? You want to begin to live life in a difficult way, not thinking of the goodness of God and his coming for you? Stop praying and stop reading your Bible. You want help in understanding this hope? More of the experience of victory of Christ in your life? Read your Bible. Psalm 119.81 says, I am worn out and waiting for your rescue. But I've put my hope in your word. Psalm 119, You are my refuge and my shield. Your word is my source of hope. Read your Bible. It's living and it's active. It's a source of hope. The other thing we need to do is actively seek the person of the Holy Spirit. God is not Father and Son, period. God is Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Seek the Holy Spirit. Paul said in Romans 15, I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. You say, God, I, I, I hear what the big, tall, big mouth, loud, crazy, emotional preacher is saying, but I'm lacking this confident hope. Pray 
read your Bible, seek the power of the person of the Holy Spirit. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Spirit. One final suggestion and then I'm done. Pursue God more than you pursue things. And I'm not preaching at you, I'm, I'm preaching to us. Okay, if I could sit with you and preach to myself at the same time, I, I would. I'm telling me to pursue God more than you pursue things. Psalm 39, 4 through 7. Lord, remind me how brief my time on earth will be. Remind me that my days are numbered, how fleeting my life is. You've made my life no longer than the width of my hand. My entire lifetime is just a moment to you. At best, each of us is but a breath. We are merely moving shadows. All of our busy rushing ends in nothing. We heap up wealth, not even knowing who's going to spend it ultimately. And so, Lord, where do I put my hope? only hope is in you. My only hope is in you. Isaiah 26.3 promises you will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. Less thoughts fixed on our finances, our position, our sway, our influence, and our comfort, and more fixed on him. Micah 7.7, 7, but as for me, I watch and hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior. My God will hear me. These things, Hebrews chapter 6 calls an anchor for our souls. When we feel detached in life, drifting, void of meaning, loose and in danger of the storms, these things, this Christian hope is an anchor to our souls. It grounds us when life and the world seem to be falling apart. Helps us to remember that because Christ will judge every person and right every wrong, the Holocaust will not go unaccounted for. Human trafficking will not go unanswered for. What is happening in Sudan will not go without recompense. The effects of sin will not always remain. Hunger will end. Earthquakes will cease. Tornadoes will be still. Tsunamis will go flat. Abortion will be abolished. Every tear will be wiped away. And there will be no more death, mourning, or pain. And because Christ is present to us now, if we've put our hope in him, we don't despair of life's trials, as hard as they are, because cancer will one day be cured. The lame shall walk. We will all get new bodies in glory. Those who mourn will be comforted. Those who feel that they don't belong will be gathered to God in intimate belonging love. The weak shall become strong. The last will be first. The brokenhearted will be comforted. The righteous will be rewarded. The schemes of the wicked and the wicked one will be thwarted. And all of this is sure because Christ rose from the dead. Lord, we say together with the psalmist in the face of all the difficulties of our lives, why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. I will praise him again, my Savior and my God. Give us the grace to do that, Lord. The light that this requires is a matter of divine intervention. We need you to rescue us from the darkness of our thoughts and our perception from the effects of our dabbling in sin. And we need the dawn of your hope to spring forth in our hearts and our minds and our lives. 
and that we be changed by this great love and these great promises. Thank you that even when we go through trials, the Holy Spirit brings about hope that does not disappoint because he pours the love of God, the Father, in our hearts. Holy Spirit, come pour the love of the Father in our hearts. Let us now experience the goodness of God and our risen Savior. Prayer team is up here if you need help with anything. If you're struggling today, come celebrate the cross with communion. And the carpets are here to worship so great a God.